You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to producer James D. Stern. He has been behind quite a few things over the years. He's been working for over 20 years now, and you will recognize quite a few of the titles that we discuss on this particular interview. I hope you enjoy. I see that you're a fellow Wolverine. Oh, yeah. Yes, I bleed amazing blue blood, I have to say. My dad went to Michigan. My other brother went to Michigan. So my other brother went to Michigan for years. So I, I come from a Michigan family. So uh, I always loved you then. The only school that I was going to go to, and that's what I did. So I got into the business, you know, really from the, from the jump. I produced all the musket shows in Michigan, which are a student-run theater that they do there. And that was my my playtime for a couple of years, uh, three years actually, and I went from there and then got a job in New York at the Manhattan Theater Club. There was a guy who, who was ahead of me at Michigan who worked at musket shows who had who got a job there, and then he gave me an internship, so I went from Michigan to there. And worked in the theater for a couple of years, and then, then worked uh, in business for a couple of years that, you know, was lost in my liking. I went to graduate school to sort of, you know, get myself kind of organized at Columbia, and then eventually started producing it. Although it, it took a while, you know, it takes a while to break in, and, uh, and I'm reflexively an entrepreneur, so I wasn't going to be somebody who was going to get a job in a more sort of traditional way. I never worked for an agency, and then worked for a studio. Um, I always wanted to go back and forth between theater and film. I love them both, and I love them both from, from the start. So, so I, I, I always felt like stories are stories, and I wanted to be able to tell stories, not so much be you know dominated by the actual mode of distribution, but, but by the story itself. Yeah, you've got such a fascinating career, the way that you bounce between theater and movies, that you're behind the camera directing, you're also behind the camera uh, producing. I mean, you just, you seem to have your fingers in a lot of different pies. Yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I have ADD or something, I don't know, I, I tend to, I tend to, uh, to keep wanting to join clubs that don't want to have someone like me for a number, but I keep joining them anyway, so I keep doing from one thing to another to another. But I, I love it. You know, it keeps it keeps a trash. And I really do. I really do love the theater, and I really do love directing, and I really do love producing. And so, you know, I'm really happy and engaged when I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I, I never feel like I've gotten stale, and I think that that's really been a um, nice for me. And uh, started when I came to Los Angeles, I did start my own company. That was almost 17 years ago, 16 and a half years ago now, and and I think that I was. Wanted to sort of have a measure of control of my of my career, and I was able to do that because I financed you know thirty some odd films sort of before the advent of of streaming, which changed things. Um, and then I was able to bounce into the streaming world as well, so that's been a good thing. So I've been able to maneuver around and you know and, and contribute to a lot of you know really interesting product, and um, and that's been you know and developed a lot of great friendships and. And I, I legitimately, like people legitimately, like working on things in a collaborative process. So that's all been, you know, pretty good. Well, if you could tell me a little bit about a project like uh, All the Rage, where you're both directing and producing. Yeah. So in the case of All the Rage, it's a it's a film that I really wrote as well. Um, it, was, it was based off of a play, which I optioned and adapted it for the for a film. I didn't really honestly know what I was doing 
with it. I, I got it through a really great casting director who I still work with to this day. Um, she really liked it. And then she said, you know, she showed it to John Allen, who at the time was, you know, like, you know, was a, a glorious rise in her career. And she said, hey, John, I have to, you know, to meet you and talk about your script. I'm like, wow, really? So I, I did, and it, you know, worked well, and then other people sort of joined down, and all of a sudden, I had a, a cast which was going to which started to attract money to finance the movie. It all happened, you know, after, after taking a long time, it all sort of happened very, very fast. And I almost found myself directing, and I remember I was directing Gary Sinise from the scene, and he looked at me and said, let's, let's, let's have dinner tonight. <laughs> and he, like, sort of gave me a tutorial on what directing was, because I honestly was, you know, probably... You know, I directly like theater, but only, you know, in terms of college, and I'd work on a lot of, you know, I think that people thought that I would produce a lot of things that I was going to be able to to just direct naturally, and I did, but it was also, it also came with, you know, with having to sort of, you know, navigate through things that I was learning as I went. After that, you know, the film was, looked like it was going to be like, you know, something everybody was going to want, and then it was less so and it was a you know it was a it was a hard transition to the business side off of that. And that was that was a learning bit too. When I sort of reca- you know, recalibrated and started things over again, started my own business, started producing, I then ended up well before that I ended up being asked to direct with IMAX and on Michael Jordan. And I'm uh, I'm involved with Chicago Bulls, so I knew Michael a bit, I knew Phil Jackson a bit. And so I think the people who had put the money together and had the idea for it you know, need somebody like me. So when I, that became a huge hit, and then all of a sudden I was in the non-narrative world, which was strange because I came from the theater, which is all about, you know, writing. And all of a sudden I was doing, I'd done this film without writing, um, which was you know, really successful. And then they wanted me to do another film. They asked me if I'd do another film. This one, I'm Yao Ming. And I did that, and all of a sudden I was a documentary filmmaker. And now I just finished my seventh, my seventh film as a documentary filmmaker in addition to the, to the films that I've done the narrative films I've done that I've produced so I've been able to um, be a little bit of a shapeshifter and that's you know sort of kept me from getting bored so because you know directing documentaries on film producing Broadway musicals producing serious films they're all very different skill sets and, uh, and you know 35 times I've financed films now I'm really producing films for, for Netflix and Amazon and places like that, and that's all so really good. So I've been very, very lucky in my, in my career. With that last documentary you produced, was that, uh, or directed, was that American Chaos, or have you done another one since? I've done another one after American Chaos. American Chaos was me walking around the country uh, interviewing Trump supporters, and uh, I just finished my new documentary. It's called Giving Voice. Um, August U.S. and the great African-American playwright who wrote things like Fences and Joe Turner's Come and Gone and Piano Lesson. Um, his widow, uh, Costanza Romero, had seen every little stuff which I directed about making of the chorus line, which was uh, shortly for the Oscar, and she asked me if I would do a film on the, on the August Wilson monologue competition, which is a competition that happens across the country every year with youth, mostly African-American youth, learn a monologue of August Wilson and in their respective cities they compete in the case of Chicago it goes from 400 kids that start down to 200 down to 60 down to 20 all the way down to 2 um, it's not in Detroit yet but hopefully maybe one day it will be and, um, and so the final 24 kids to each city then go to Broadway to perform and compete at the August Wilson Theater on Broadway 
so that's what the so that's what the documentary is. And uh, it's uh, executive produced by uh, Viola Davis. Uh, she's in it. And uh, Washington's in it, talking about their work with uh, Wilson. Uh, Costanza is in it. So it's I think it's quite quite good. And we just we just lock the picture, and uh, we'll be finished with everything probably in another couple months. Tell me about how you founded Endgame Entertainment. I'm very curious how that came about. So when I when I decided to leave, I was living in Chicago and doing things from Chicago, mostly at, on stage, some film as well. Um, and I felt like in order to really you know be in the middle of the film world, I had to be in the middle of the film world. So I did to move to Los Angeles. Um, I'd already done a lot, but I wasn't. I was you know would be well on the outside of film. And I, when I went out to and, and met with agents and people like that, everybody was asking me to direct something like All the Rage. This age, which was sort of dark comedy, and so what I was getting was a lot of things that were very similar to what I just done. And I thought, well, why would I do want to do something? I just sort of done the same. I've sort of done something like this. Why would I want to do this again? And and, and that's that's how you select directors. It doesn't. It's not a surprise. I mean, everybody's trying to find ways to sort of reduce risk, and you know, and by when you reduce risk by finding somebody who's who can work in the milieu that um, that you know the pressure that you have. So I, I understood it, but it's not what I wanted. So I thought if I could raise some money, I could start my own company, and then I could just you know do a few things on my own. I just done the producers, which obviously did very well. I was I uh, was one of the hairspray, which was going to do really well. So I had I built up a certain you know, investor base of people who who thought that I was you know smart and had a good idea, and I had an idea to sort of combine creative producing with finance and a, and a way to do it at that time and a way to do it in a way which was had, you know, less which was a bit risk averse in a very risky world and I raised a bunch of money and, uh, and I started Endgame met a lot of people, started the company did very really well for a few years and then because of that I raised a lot more money and, you know, it's a company that I still have, you know, every year later The raft of films that you have produced through Endgame have just, it's such an interesting grab bag of stuff. And I love that it's both really super independent kind of stuff. Like, I mean, you're working with Todd Haynes and Ryan Johnson, but then you've also got Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're all over the place with this again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps because I like film so much. I like stories so much. So, Bob Dylan was a you know the hero of mine and you know and, and so you know I thought Todd was brilliant and I loved Christine Brisson the, the his producer and, and so if, if someone was going to be doing that kind of film then I wanted to be part of it and, you know and at the same time I thought that you know Kevin Kumar at White Castle was hysterical I wanted to be part of that I mean this last summer I've just done Murder Mystery which is now the largest which is now if not the biggest film Netflix history it's certainly at the very top and very commercial, very down the middle of the plate with Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston, and people really love it. And I've done Bliss, which is Mike Cahill's new movie. I think Mike is a billioning you know, genius, frankly. And uh, it's, a, it's a crazy story about two people who fall in love uh, who are either in a simulation or uh, on opioids, and that's with Owen Wilson and Sama Hayek. And then I did my own documentary, you know, giving voice. So I did these three all in one summer and they're all completely different from one another and I'm very very happy with that and I've, all these projects are different from my standpoint they all have to adhere to storytelling principles and and narrative arcs and things like that and that you know and if you can if you can do that then the 
fact that they have um, that they're different stylistically shouldn't matter. And so uh, um, and it keeps me really engaged and you know, loving what I do. Is it just because of the sheer number of movies that he makes, or is there some other reason why you have been behind so many Nick Cage movies over the years? <laughs> I guess I'd say that uh, each project you do is a new day, and so if, if, if you know if you're if there's, a, if there's an actor that you know is going to make something you know the right choice for that role, then that's who you go with. So I, I <laughs> but yes, I've done things. I've done like you know from a you know great film like Lord of War to film that did not work like Army of One. So you know, I've I've run, I've run a little bit of a gamut with uh, with, with the Cage. Tell me about a project like Looper. How does Looper come into your life? Because that, to me, that is still one of the strongest time travel, if not just sci-fi movies of the last twenty years. I had done a film called Brothers Bloom, which um, Ron and Ryan did Brick together, which was a wonderful small film. They were set to go with, I believe, Focus at the time. For whatever reason, they were running into some difficulties getting that film Focus to the finish line. Um, and I was financing movies with, with Endgame. We all had shared it some, you know, the same agent, uh, Michael Green from CIA at the time. So they came in, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I read Brothers Bloom. I loved it. I loved Carter's stories. I thought it was, I thought it was incredibly imaginative. I thought the writing was fabulous. I, I thought Brick was amazing. So I threw my hand in the ring, and then ended up producing the Brothers Bloom. Brothers Bloom did not do well as a film, but it was clear to me how talented uh, Ryan was. I also thought that the fact that Brothers Bloom did not do well had nothing to do with the film itself. It had to do with. Um, with uh, distribution from Summit at the time, um, which was on its way to doing Twilight series. They were really you know, putting all their eggs in that basket, which was the correct choice for them. And so once we finished Brothers Bloom, the three of us had a great experience together, and Ron came to me and said, I'm not going to show this to anybody. And I, this, this is this is called Looper. Take the weekend to read it, but on Monday, tell me if you're, if you're, if you're in, then it's yours. If you're not, if, you, if it's a maybe, I'll open it to the, to the community. If it's, if it's not, you cut a few no worries. And I'm, I, I read it and called in some of said, I'm doing it. And that's how Luke happened. And then it was a lot of, you know, working with, and then it was a lot of working, you know, I mean, Ryan's, a, Ryan is just great. And he's just a great guy. And Ron's a great guy. And, and it was a joy to work with him. And it was a joy to, to work um, leapers at that early, you know, as part of that process so early, you know, and I think that I hear Knives Out is great, and seeing that letter, I hear it's wonderful. Um, I, I love his Star Wars. I mean, he's just a special, special talented guy, and I was incredibly fortunate to be able to work with them, with him and, and with Ron. I produced five of the films with them, so I mean, we, you know, it's, a, it's, it's been, a, you know, they're great guys, and really, really, really lucky. So you talked a little bit about murder mystery before, and the one thing I noticed on there is there are so many producers. So when there's a situation like that, what is your role on that type of a film? There are and there's not, right? So I think that I've been working on the, I worked on the, on murder mystery for about 10 years before it was made, and it was really just myself and Trip Vincent. My Trip had a partner, so he got a credit, but Flynn... Other people got credits because of contractual issues. Jamie uh, Vanderbilt, who's the writer, also has a has a credit that she deserves. He's fantastic. So it was really Trip and I and Jamie. Jamie, of course, having a special role because he's the writer. 
Um, and then once we took it to Netflix and and Santa and his company, Happy Madison, then they came out as producers as well. So there was many, many years when it was really just the three of us, Trip, myself, and Jamie, and um, carrying the ball. And, and Jamie was really, you know, was obviously taking the lead on the creative side. So, um, you know, if you look at something like producing the producers on Broadway or Hairspray or any of those shows, sometimes you do a tremendous amount and sometimes you don't. And the thing that makes producing tricky when people ask me, you know, what a producer do, and I always, they're always embarrassed after the question, but I always say it's a great question because it's complicated because you do so many different things. Sometimes you, know, you do everything, and sometimes you do very little, you know, and, and you, at the end of the day, it should balance out. I've had a lot more. I mean, in the case of Bliss with the Mike Cahill movie, I've done everything. In the case of something else, I've done less. But, you know, it, it balances out over the time. So I think that what's important is that you are committed to the story that's being told and the way in which that story is going to get, you know, uh, uh, told through not only who directs it, but obviously who's in it. Yeah, that always seems to be the thing with producers. Is like, so what did you do on this movie? And it's like, well, you know, I was the guy who all the way from got the coffee to made the deals to, to put the package together. And it's just, I mean, you just in the producer role, you can wear so many different hats. And it's like, do you even know when you start on a project what you're going to be doing by the end of it? You do, you, you do, because you know who you're working with. And in my case, I, I can sort of do all of it at this point. So it's you either delegate or you delegate less, you know. And um, you know, and so in something like uh, Bliss, you know, I had a you know sort of special working relationship with the director, Mike Cahill, and so I wanted to you know really do the sort of full time on it, you know. In the case of something else, it's it's, it's it's more complicated because I do do a lot of films. I mean, I've done 70 closer movies, you know, in, in not that long a period of time, relatively speaking. So in order to get that kind of, that amount of work done, you, you do have to be able to delegate and you do have to be able to feel comfortable stepping away as well as comfortable stepping in. I also think that you have to know when to do both. Right? You have to know when it's critical for you to be there. And if you have really good partners, then you can step away, but then, you know, but when it's time to actually make a contribution, then you can step in. I think it's something that producers tend to do, which I think is unfortunate, is they feel in order to protect that, you know, producers go with America Mark or their own sense of what they've done, they need to be visible. And so they, they do less because they're just sitting around on a set, basically, you know, craft services talking on the phone to people, you know, but it's not, that's not necessarily i never felt any desire to, to do that. I'm going to be on set, I'm going to be on set doing something and being really active and really helping the process. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So I think that that's the, that's the you know, sort of good lesson to kind of learn and consider. And with Murder Mystery, I know it was a, a Netflix-produced film. How has streaming affected your career? Because as you said, you've been doing this, I mean, since... You know, kind of you're on the tail end of that independent boom of the 90s, so I'm sure you've seen so many changes in the industry. I have seen changes, and I think that it's really critical to, uh, you know, my father a long time ago told me, um, never dictate to the market. The market will always dictate to you. If you dictate to the market, you always lose. And he was great advice. He was right. The fact of the matter is that the world changed, and I don't finance films anymore because independent film is unfinanceable in the way I was doing it. What you were doing before is if you did Looper and it was, you know, a film for, say, whatever, $35 million, and those are obviously not, you know, those are rough, not real numbers, but that's in, in that range, and you could 
yourself on contracts and, and through tax credits, you you made up to about you have about a five million dollar exposure. So you sold you know twenty some odd million dollars in foreign sales contracts. Those those foreign sales contracts. If Germany is, is saying that they'll pay three million dollars for the rights to distribute liquor in Germany because that's what they knew it was worth in foreign television. It wasn't really about what it was worth in terms of the foreign box office for, for theatrical. Those numbers are all gotten, you know, completely upended by Netflix, and uh, you know, because that's what people watch overseas as well as it is here, as well as Amazon, seem to be Apple, etc. So once that happened, the idea of the, the ability to finance films independently shifted. So you either shift with it, or you were a dinosaur, and you were going to go the way dinosaurs, which is to become extinct. In my case, I, I happily shifted with it. So I don't have the control I used to, but I also don't have the pressure of, you know, of a film needing to work in a certain way for me to, to survive what I, I did. So, you know, you, you just have to be realistic and clear-eyed and, you know, and know what your goals are. My goals have always been product first. So what happens with a movie like Bliss? What is the plan to distribute that, to get that out to the market? Well, it's an Amazon movie, so Amazon will both, it, it should come out theatrically, and, and then it will go on Amazon's streaming service. So that's a nice, I mean, this is a great movie. So Bliss is in a, is in a, is in a you know, is in a great situation. In the case of Giving Voice, you know, there is no distributor at this point. You know, we just made the film, and I, I imagine that it will be sold um, at a festival, and then we'll see what happens from there. It will either be sold to the screener or possibly even, you know, go through the more traditional route. Again, my, what I did with that movie was I made the movie. I made it for the right price, and I directed it, and so I'm, you know, that's the, that's the first step. And so now what happens next would be what is, is the second step. Are you still doing uh, theater as well as the films? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just, uh, I just bought the rights to do a musical of the movie Silver Lion Playbook, which I'm very excited about. Uh, that's a process which would be a long, I mean, it's a long process. It's not a short process, um, but we'll, we're starting on that now. And uh, you know, we have to find the uh, the right composer, lyricist, and you know, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's going to take a while. But I mean, I I love it. I love Broadway. I will always want to do in the stage. It's a, there's immediacy, which is just you know, is is amazing and it's great. So I, I I'm always going to want to do that. Could you tell me what it was like working with uh, Tarsem Singh on Selfless? Yeah, it's hard. Sam was amazing. So he's so visual, and uh, um, and it was, you know, and, and I think that I think that in a way he was a, you know, he like Todd Haynes um, shared this tremendous visual, you know, and, and this shared this tremendous ability to have a visual language, and so it was, you know, it was great working with Tarsam, and uh, um, you know, he had so he had multiple cameras going, you know, his angles were really interesting, his, you know, he was really a visual master, so I, I and, and a lovely, lovely man, so that was, that's the, the main takeaway from him was how strongly visual he was. It feels like you don't really rest very much at all. How many projects do you have going on at a moment? Uh, right now, a bunch. <laughs> I have a bunch now, and they're 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 in different stages, you know, because I'm also doing, um, you know, I'm going on Thursday. I go to Denver um, and interview five women who, in response to Trump in 2018, all um, ran for state senate in Colorado. 
they'd all known each other for a dozen years, and they all won. And, uh, and they actually passed, you know, a really progressive um, uh, gun control law there. And uh, it's a fascinating story. And we're going to try and turn it into a docu-series so, on these women. So, I mean, that's, that's a completely different, you know, uh, project. And that uh, died on Thursday. So that's a different thing. We're doing a project with the NBA on, uh, on their developmental league, their G League, also a docu-series. Um, so, you know, there's and Last Chance U, which is entering its fifth year for from that type, so it's still, you know, ongoing. And uh, talks can continue to, for, for more for the future. Um, and then, uh, you know, talking about, you know, there's two films with Netflix and hopefully uh, and another film with Michael and hopefully something else with Amazon. So there's a lot going on. And uh, I'm very, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today because I know you don't have very much to spare. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No worries. Thank you for having me. in life are free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.